Chapter Nineteen of the Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Chapter Nineteen of sallies and retires, of trenches, tents, of palisados, frontiers, parapets, of basilisks, of cannon, culverin, and all the currents of a heady fight. King Henry the Fourth. Simultaneously with the capture of Island Number Ten occurred the Battle of Shiloh. The first reports were very wild, stating our loss at seventeen thousand, and asserting that the Union commander had been disastrously surprised, and hundreds of men bayoneted in their tents. It was even added that Grant was intoxicated during the action. This last fiction showed the tenacity of a bad name. Years before, Grant was intemperate, but he had abandoned the habit soon after the beginning of the war. General Albert Sidney Johnson was killed, and Beauregard ultimately driven back, leaving his dead and wounded in our hands. But Jefferson Davis, with the usual rebel policy, announced in a special message to the Confederate Congress, it has pleased Almighty God again to crown the Confederate arms with a glorious and decided victory over our invaders. I went up the Tennessee River by a boat crowded with representatives, chiefly women, of the sanitary commissions of Cincinnati, St. Louis, and Chicago. One evening religious services were held in the cabin. A clergyman exhorted his hearers, when they should arrive at the bloody field, to minister to the spiritual as well as the physical wants of the sufferers. With special infelicity, he added, Many of them have doubtless been wicked men, but you can at least remind them of divine mercy, and tell them the story of the thief on the cross. The next speaker, a quiet gentleman, wearing the blouse of a private soldier, after some remarks about practical religion, added, I cannot agree with the last brother. I believe we shall best serve the souls of our wounded soldiers by ministering for the present simply to their bodies. For my own part, I feel that he who has fallen fighting for our country, for your cause and mine, is more of a man than I am. He may have been wicked, but I think room will be found for him among the many mansions above. I should be ashamed to tell him the story of the thief on the cross. Hearty, spontaneous clapping of hands through the crowded cabin followed this sentiment, a rather unusual demonstration for a prayer meeting. The speaker was the Reverend Robert Collier of Chicago. With officers who had participated in the battle, I visited every part of the field. The ground was broken by sharp hills, deep ravines, and dense timber, which the eye could not penetrate. The reports of a surprise were substantially untrue. No man was bayoneted in his tent, or anywhere else, according to the best evidence I could obtain. But the statements, said to come from Grant and Sherman, that they could not have been better prepared, had they known that Beauregard designed to attack, were also untrue. Our troops were not encamped advantageously for battle. Raw and unarmed regiments were on the extreme front, which was not picketed or scouted as it should have been in the face of an enemy. 
Beauregard attacked on Sunday morning at daylight. The rebels greatly outnumbered the Unionists, and impetuously forced them back. Grant's army was entirely western. It contained representatives of nearly every county in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Partially unprepared, and steadily driven back, often ill-commanded, and their organizations broken, the men fought with wonderful tenacity. It was almost a hand-to-hand -hand conflict. Confederates and loyalists, from behind trees, within thirty feet of each other, kept up a hot fire, shouting, respectively, Bull Run! and Donelson! Prentice's shattered division, in that dense forest, was flanked, before its commander knew that the supporting forces, McClernand on his right and Hurlbut on his left, had been driven back. Messengers sent to him by those commanders were killed. During a lull in the firing, Prentice was lighting his cigar from the pipe of a soldier, when he learned that the enemy was on both sides of him, half a mile in his rear. With the remnant of his command, he was captured. Remaining in rebel hands for six months, he was enabled to indulge in oratory to his heart's content. Southern papers announced with intense indignation that Prentice, occupying with his officers an entire train, called out by the bystanders, was permitted to make radical Union speeches at many Southern railway stations. Removed from prison to prison, the Illinois general continued to harangue the people, and his men to sing the star-spangled banner, until at last the rebels were glad to exchange them. Throughout the battle, Grant rode to and fro on the front, smoking his inevitable cigar, with his usual stolidity and good fortune. Horses and men were killed all around him, but he did not receive a scratch. On that wooded field it was impossible for anyone to keep advised of the progress of the struggle. Grant gave few orders, merely bidding his generals do the best they could. Sherman had many hair-breadth scapes. His bridle-rein was cut off by a bullet within two inches of his fingers. As he was leaning forward in the saddle, a ball whistled through the top and back of his hat. His metallic shoulder-strap warded off another bullet, and a third passed through the palm of his hand. Three horses were shot under him. He was the hero of the day, all awarded to him the highest praise for skill and gallantry. He was promoted to a major generalship dating from the battle. His official report was a clear, vivid, and fascinating description of the conflict. Five bullets penetrated the clothing of an officer on McClernand's staff, but did not break the skin. A ball knocked out two front teeth of a private in the 17th Illinois Infantry, but did him no further injury. A rifle shot passed through the head of a soldier in the 1st Missouri Artillery, coming out just above his ear, but did not prove fatal. Dr. Cornyn of St. Louis told me that he extracted a ball from the brain of one soldier, who, three days afterward, was on duty, with the bullet in his pocket. More than a year afterward, at the Battle of Fredericksburg, Captain Richard Cross of the 5th New Hampshire Infantry noticed one of his men, whose skull had been cut open by a fragment of a shell, with a section of it standing upright, leaving the brain exposed. 
Cross shut the piece of skull down like the lid of a teapot, tied a handkerchief around it, and sent to the rear the wounded soldier, who ultimately recovered. The one truth taught by field experience to army surgeons was that few, if any, wounds are invariably fatal. At Shiloh, Brigadier General Thomas W. Sweeney, who had lost one arm in the Mexican War, received a mini-bullet in his remaining arm, and another shot in his foot, while his horse fell riddled with seven balls. Almost fainting from loss of blood, he was lifted upon another horse, and remained on the field through the entire day. His coolness and his marvelous escapes were talked of before many campfires throughout the army. Once, during the battle, he was unable to determine whether a battery whose men were dressed in blue was rebel or union. Sweeney, leaving his command, rode at a gentle gallop directly toward the battery, until within pistol-shot, saw that it was manned by Confederates, turned in a half-circle, and rode back again at the same easy pace. Not a single shot was fired at him, so much was the respect of the Confederates excited by this daring act. I afterward met one of them, who described with great vividness the impression which Sweeney's gallantry made upon them. The steady determination of Grant's troops during that long April Sunday was perhaps unequaled during the war. At night companies were commanded by sergeants, regiments by lieutenants, and brigades by majors. In several regiments one-half the men were killed and wounded. In some entire divisions the killed and wounded exceeded thirty-three percent of the numbers who went into battle. I have seen no other field which gave indication of such deadly conflict as the Shiloh ridges and ravines, everywhere covered with a very thick growth of timber, shot sown and bladed thick with steel. In one tree I counted sixty bullet holes, another bore marks of more than ninety balls within ten feet of the ground. Sometimes, for several yards in the dense shrubbery, it was difficult to find a twig as large as one's finger which had not been cut off by balls. A friend of mine counted one hundred and twenty-six dead rebels lying where they fell, upon an area less than fifty yards wide and a quarter of a mile long. One of our details buried in a single trench, one hundred and forty-seven of the enemy, including three lieutenant colonels and four majors. But our forces, overpowered by numbers, fell farther and farther back, while the rebels took possession of many Union camps. At night our line, originally three miles in length, was shortened to three-quarters of a mile. For weeks the inscrutable Buell had been leisurely marching through Kentucky and Tennessee to join Grant. He arrived at the supreme moment. At four o'clock that Sunday afternoon, General Nelson of Kentucky, who commanded Buell's advance, crossed the Tennessee and rode up to Grant and his staff when the battle was raging. "'Here we are, General,' said Nelson, with the military salute, and pointing to long files of his well-clad, athletic, admirably disciplined fellows, already pouring on the steamboats to be ferried across the river. "'Here we are. We are not very military in our division. We don't know many fine points or nice evolutions. But if you want stupidity and hard fighting, I reckon we are the men for you.' That night both armies lay upon their guns, 
and the opposing pickets were often within a hundred yards of each other. The groans and cries of the dying rendered it impossible to sleep. Grant said, We must not give the enemy the moral advantage of attacking tomorrow morning. We must fire the first gun. Just at daybreak the rebels were surprised at all points of the line by assaults from the foe whom they had supposed vanquished. Grant's shattered troops behaved admirably, and Buell's splendid army won new laurels. The Confederates were forced back on all points. Their retreat was a stampede, leaving behind great quantities of ammunition, commissary stores, guns, caissons, small arms, supply wagons, and ambulances. They were not vigorously followed, but as no effective pursuit was made by either side during the entire war, until Sheridan in one of its closing scenes captured Lee, perhaps northern and southern troops were too equally matched for either to be thoroughly routed. Beauregard withdrew to Corinth, as usual announcing a glorious victory. He addressed a letter to Grant, asking permission under a flag of truce to send a party to the battlefield to bury the Confederate dead. He prefaced the request as follows. Sir, at the close of the conflict of yesterday, my forces being exhausted by the extraordinary length of the time during which they were engaged with yours on that and the preceding day, and it being apparent that you had received and were still receiving reinforcements, I felt it my duty to withdraw my troops from the immediate scene of the conflict. Grant was strongly tempted to assure Beauregard that no apologies for his retreat were necessary, but he merely replied in a courteous note, declining the request, and stating that the dead were already interred. The losses on both sides were officially reported as follows. Union. Killed, 1,614. Wounded, 7,721. Missing, 3,963. Total, 13,298. Rebel killed, 1,728, wounded, 8,012, missing, 959, total, 10,699. The excess of rebel wounded was owing to the superiority of the muskets used by the Federal soldiers, and the excess of the Union missing to the capture of Prentice's division. End of chapter 19